Galatians 5 and 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the, act, with the affections there and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. Everybody say long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. This is the 10th lesson in this series, and uh, we... we, we took several weeks building up to, to, uh, to the conversation, and now we're going to try to talk about gentleness, goodness, and faith. God, I thank you, Lord Jesus. I praise you for your word. I thank you, God, for the influence of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Thank you, God, because you're not willing to leave us the way that you found us, but God, you want your spirit to produce fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Amen. The Greek word for fruit, I think I've said this, this is the 10th time now, 10th lesson on this subject. The Greek word means that which originates or comes from something. It is the effect or the result of something. And so the lesson is clear that if we have the Spirit of God inside of us, it will work in us and bring forth an effect, a change in our lives. We do not simply live and behave and act like every other person. Amen. Because God's Spirit is inside of us affecting a different result. The fruit of the Spirit are not the same as talents and abilities and spiritual gifts. I have certain talents and abilities. I don't have a lot of talents, but I have, I think I probably have some. I have no musical talents at all. There are other talents, however. There's some talents I don't have, some I, I do have. There are some spiritual gifts that I'm stronger in than others. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, it's not the same as talents, abilities, and gifts. The fruit of the Spirit are not a pick-and-choose proposition. Well, I'm good at having joy, but I'm terrible at being kind. Well, that's not, that's not sufficient. That's not the way we ought to be. When, when I hear people say, well, you'll just have to deal with me. That's how God made me. That's how I know someone hadn't been praying enough. No one can decide that since kindness might come easy for them, that that must be their fruit and they don't need to worry about the rest of them. The fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Holy Ghost that works in our lives, that desires to produce all nine of the fruit in our lives, not just one or two. I, I, I said it a second ago, I'll say it again, and maybe in a little bit of a different way, but almost any time I hear a Christian say, that's just how I am. I immediately know that they are spiritually stubborn and probably flesh-driven. I got zero amens, but a few head nods. 
God loves us just how we are. But he refuses to leave us that way. Amen. Just, just one other reminder. And that is that the fruit of the Spirit are, con are contrasted by Paul to the works of the flesh. He spends time talking about the actions or the works of the flesh. Things that are done out of our own human personality, desires, abilities, weaknesses. But he contrasts the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. And so the fruit of the Spirit are not necessarily things that just come easy for us. It's things that God produces in us through our relationship with him. Works are actions done on your own. You can act more loving, but that's not what Paul is telling us to do. Paul is telling us to let the Spirit make us more loving. Paul is teaching us that we need to be more in relationship with the Spirit of God, not just put on a facade so people think we're a certain way. God doesn't want us to act nice. God wants us to be nice. Is this, is this okay? This is about as basic as it can get, folks. It's, this is uh, cornbread. But people buy cornbread, so you must like it. So. The fruit of the Spirit seems to divided into, be divided into groups of three. Love, joy, and peace. Are, they reveal our heart towards God. That when we're walking with God, that we have, we have love, joy, and peace. When we experience his love, we become more loving. When we, when we have his spirit, we get joy. That's, that the Bible said in, some, in one place is unspeakable. So that we can have joy. Have you ever had joy when it seemed like you shouldn't have had joy? But, but it was because the Holy Ghost helped you have it. Because it's not circumstantial at that point. It's relational with God. And the same with peace. They are inward dispositions of God's presence. Because I have his presence, I have love, joy, and peace. But now, tonight, we're going to talk about long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. And these deal with our outward treatment of other people. While love, joy, and peace have to, is something inside that we have because of our relationship with God. When we talk about long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness, what we're talking about is how the Spirit helps us treat other people in a godly way. They, we begin to deal with others in the way that God has dealt with us. In our world, long-suffering with others and kindness and goodness are becoming more and more rare. People in the world rarely see these elements exhibited in worldly people. But in God's kingdom, we should always see them. Amen. Faith, the last three we'll talk about next week, faith, meekness, and temperance describe how we conduct ourselves when no one else is looking sometimes. Tonight, we're starting on that middle group that deals with long-suffering and gentleness and goodness. These three fruits are external or outward expressions of God's Spirit inside of us. When we have these first three, love, joy, and peace, we're able to have these inwardly, but, you, but if you're going to have long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness, it's always towards others. 
The attributes are noticed by those who are around us. A spirit-controlled believer should live in such a way that people on the outside know that there's something different about us. Amen. I can have love for God and people not necessarily be able to see it if they don't if they don't if I interact with them all the time, but they'll know pretty quick if I have kindness and goodness in me. These attributes make somebody known by the fruit they bear. They're external characteristics that signify the spirit within us. And so I want to talk about long-suffering. Long-suffering is, is defined as forbearance. It's a word we don't use a lot anymore. Patience, endurance, slowness to avenge wrongs. Long-suffering is the willingness to bear under a trial, under inconvenience, unkindness, or other forms of personal provocation without losing composure. There's a whole lot in that. Lord, help me. Amen. I'll take any feedback I can get. Long-suffering is willingness to bear under a trial, under inconvenience, to deal with unkindness from someone or other provocations without losing your composure. Amen. There's all kinds of provocation, isn't there? But someone who's long-suffering or spirit-controlled holds on to their character even when they're provoked by someone else. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned. I, I, have I gotten old enough, Sister Carson, have I gotten old enough to be concerned with younger generations? I have. Okay, she nodded her head yes. I'm concerned with the broad range of Pentecostalism in that we are so experientially based and we try so hard. I say we, and I'm not talking about Bethlehem. I'm talking about the wide apostolic movement. We try so hard to have an exciting experience that we don't, all, we don't necessarily teach character like we ought to. Amen. But there is something about a Holy Ghost-filled person that when they deal with hardship and provocation, that we hold on to our character and hold on to our composure. We should not react to things in the world like worldly people do. Amen. And even now, I mean, I'm, I'm a Pentecostal preacher and I love getting good amens and I feel pressure to try to make this more exciting and I just don't know how I'm going to do it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be long-suffering with my own sermon tonight. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the enemy very often uses people. Amen. I'm, now, I don't, I'm not a real spooky sort of person. 
I'm not looking for devils under every rock or angels behind every curtain. There's, there's, I know some folks that they, they're always seeing angels and devils as the result of everything. I tend more to see the, the biggest devil is ourselves. And so, but it is very often in spiritual warfare, the devil doesn't have to use a devil because people make it so easy to be used. And so why employ a devil when you can employ a person? Praise God. This might get, get me kicked off of the Pentecostal preacher play, page or whatever. But if I was the devil and I could use a person to fight somebody, I wouldn't even waste my time getting another devil involved. The enemy uses people, people who are unaware that they're being used. Can I, can I take it just a little step further? Very often manipulating Christians. to be weapons against other Christians. We've got to be spirit-controlled. I don't want my words that I say to be used by the enemy because I didn't let the Holy Ghost control my personality, my words, my actions, and my response. Amen. When under spiritual attack and in spiritual warfare, it's important to keep your human spirit in check by God's spirit. And that's often the difference between winning and losing, how you maintain your composure. The world, the world is operated by Satan. The Bible said he's the prince and the power of the air. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's that's what Satan means. That's what the word devil and that's what the word Satan both mean is accuser. The world is operated by the accuser of the brethren. He's the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. You may live for God great for six days of the week in front of everybody you know. But if the enemy can get you to lose your patience and composure one time, you might have been godly six days, but there'll be somebody around that said, well, I thought you were a true Christian. That's, what, that's the way the enemy works. And so we have to be long-suffering because God's long-suffering to us. 2 Peter 3 and 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Now, I, I love the way that the apostle Peter builds this argument. He starts out in verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Isn't it great that if you, I mean, I'm, I'm not good at multitasking, so he says, just don't be ignorant of this one thing. Keep this in mind, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Well, that's, uh, let's, let's break this verse down a little bit because... We're human and we think in terms of time. We think years, months, days, hours, minutes. We think in terms of time. But Paul said, don't be ignorant of this one thing today. He said, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Now, is he trying to tell us that, 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 that 1,000 years is the same to God as exactly one day and it's a linear measurement? 
that 25,000 years to us is like only 25 days to God. I think what he's really trying to tell us is that God doesn't measure time like we do. God doesn't look at things like we do. When, when, when we think that it's been a long time to God, it's like that. He's making this point. He's, he's trying to get us to understand that in terms of time, God doesn't look at it like we do. Now, why would Paul want us to understand this one thing? Why would he start his argument by saying, remember this, God doesn't look at time like you do. He doesn't measure it like you do. Now, why would Paul want us to understand that principle? Like, look at the very next verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. If we don't understand that God doesn't look at time like we do, we'll get very frustrated if something doesn't happen as fast as we want it to. Amen? Anybody ever been prophesied to and, and the prophet said this or this or this was going to happen and you woke up the next day and nothing was changed, you thought, ah, that's a false prophet. Because we think in terms of time differently than God does. He said, you have to understand that God doesn't look at time like you do. And so when you're tempted to think that God's not keeping his promises, you just hadn't waited long enough. Because if God promised it, it's going to happen. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. That's an interesting argument he's making here. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter said, here's what you've got to remember. You think God's not keeping his promises because you're thinking like men think. That's how men count slackness. He said, but God's not that way. God's long-suffering to us. God's patient with us. Why is God so long-suffering with us? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. I think the point that Paul's trying to make is that we try to think, okay, God, I know I've got to be long-suffering. How long do I have to be suffering? If I put up with somebody's rotten attitude for a week, is that enough? And then I'm justified to lay hands on them suddenly without prayer? God, I put, up with, I put up with them for six months. Is that long enough? He said, you got to understand, God doesn't look at time like you do. God, the, God's not slack concerning his promise. He's long-suffering to us because he doesn't want anybody to be lost. So how long should I be long-suffering someone? As long as it takes for them to be saved. We think six months, two minutes, six years, five years. But God doesn't look at it like that. God says, as long as it takes. How long is God going to be long-suffering with us? As long as it takes because he's not willing that any of us should perish. We want retribution. God wants restoration. We want revenge. God wants renewal. And so he says, you've got to understand that time does not play a factor when you're talking about being long-suffering with people. Oh, I don't like it either, folks. I wish God gave me a, a countdown. 
where I could, when, when, when I could count the seconds down and when it gets to three, two, one, then I can explode and just say what I want to say. But he hasn't done that. He said, you got to be long-suffering. Let's, let's go a little bit further and maybe a little bit faster. Long-suffering comes from the Greek word markothumia, and it means to be long-tempered. In other words, don't have a short fuse. If you have a short fuse, say, God, I need the help of the Holy Ghost to help me be long-tempered and long-suffering. Help me, God, to get my temper under control. Can I talk to the men for a second? The Bible said I would that men pray everywhere, lifting holy hands without wrath and doubting. Why did he say that to men? Why would he say I would that men pray everywhere, lifting holy hands without wrath and doubting? Because generally speaking, men have more trouble connecting in worship. They have more pride. Some of you ladies, you had a perfect chance to say amen there and you didn't do it. It's because, but generally speaking, men have more difficulty connecting in worship because worship has an emotional connection to God. And, and so he said, men, you gotta pray and lift holy hands. And then he said, without wrath. Why would he say that? Why didn't he say, why didn't he say, I would that women not have wrath? I think he should have said that. Because he knows that men generally have a greater battle with anger. Not always, trust me, I know. And I'm not talking about my wife. She's, I've said it all over and over. She's gotta be about the easiest person in the world to live with. Amen. Besides me, I was teasing her the other day and she's here and I'm gonna get in trouble for this one, but she's gotta be long suffering because I'm preaching about it. And she has to do it. But I told her the other day, I said, Sarah, look how pretty you are. You still look young. You don't have wrinkles. You're not all gray. Look how pretty. And then look at me. I'm balding and wrinkled and pudgy. And just, I said, it just goes to show it's a whole lot easier living with me than it is you. <laughs> and then she said, I was a big fat brat. <laughs> That's not long suffering. Let me just tell you, frowning and being sour-spirited is not a sign of spirituality. People who are controlled by the Spirit are not always flying off into a rage about everything. They're long-tempered. And contrary to popular view, a person who is long-suffering is not weak or meek. They're not weak and it because they're, because they're long-suffering. Instead, they show strong character and they're bold in resisting human reactions to things. Paul, in Ephesians 4, 4 and 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He says, Christians, you need to walk in such a way that it reveals that you are Christian. Walk worthy of your calling. Don't call yourself a Christian and then just live like everybody else lives. This is good preaching right here. He said, you, I'm, 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 I beseech you, I'm begging you, I'm instructing you, walk like a Christian. 
Well, how do I do that? Verse two, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You have to value unity and peace more than you value winning an argument. Amen. Long-suffering, forbearing one another. You know, I, 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 had a, uh, I had a marriage counseling session several years ago with some folks. And man, they, they, were, they were very creative in ways to put the other one down. I mean, they, they, they would tell me about some of their arguments. And, and I came to the conclusion that they were spending a lot of time preparing to argue. They had, their, they had their responses thought out in advance. They were ready. They knew what their spouse was going to say, and they had an argument or an insult ready to go right back. Y'all wouldn't have come tonight if you'd have known I was going to be this on uh, this plane, would you? And I finally told, I got tired of listening to it, and I finally told him, I said, if you spend as much time planning to get along as you do planning to fight, we wouldn't be here right now. He said, with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another with love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You have to value peace with other people more than you value winning every argument you're in. Be long-suffering with each other and forbear one another in love. Forbearing, that's, forbear is not a word we use a lot these days. The word forbear means to put up with, to bear with, to endure, to suffer. Brother Wilson, one time you cracked me up. Well, you've done it a lot, but, but we, I don't remember who we were around. There was somebody visiting or whatever, and you, and, and, and you said, it's a pressure to know you. <laughs> and we all laughed. And we all had a good time. The guy didn't get mad, didn't get offended. He knew it was a joke, or at least he thought it was a joke. It, but, but let's just be honest. There's some people that, that, that put pressure on you, right? There's some people that we have to interact with in our life that it is pressure. It's a constant struggle there's some people that are so passive aggressive. They're trying to press your buttons. They're doing the best they can. But the Bible says that we forbear one another. We just put up with, we bear with it, we endure, we suffer it. Because we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let's go on to gentleness. Gentleness, the definition of the word gentleness is kindness. Gentleness is a gracious attitude towards others, even toward those who are unwilling, difficult, and resistant. It's not kindness if you're only being kind to people that are being kind to you. It's a gracious attitude towards even those who are difficult and resistant. Here's what James said, James chapter number three, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. 
That's an interesting, that, that's, that's an interesting choice of words. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. There are some people that like having conflict with people. I hate to admit it, but it's true. There's some people, they just, they like getting into it with folks. He said, if that's, if you have that in your heart, glory not. Don't, don't think it's a, a mark of, of something good. He said, don't get, don't be happy about that. He said, look at verse 15. This verse, man, this is an awesome verse. This wisdom descendeth not from above. People that enjoy conflict, he said, this doesn't come from above. This isn't from heaven. He said, it's earthly or worldly. Sensual, that means it's flesh-driven. Or this last one. Devilish. Wow. If you have bitter envying and strife in your heart, don't think it's good. Don't brag. There's some people that if they're mad at someone, bitter at somebody, envy somebody, they want to they, they tell everybody about it. They glory in it. They can't wait to tell people about how bad this one is or that one or whatever. James said that's not from above. It's not godly. It's not holy. He said it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. That, 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 that suffix ish, you know, like if somebody, their brother, I think Brother Wilson preached a message years ago about being apostolic ish. It means sort of, but not really. I don't even want to be sort of like a devil. James said, This wisdom's not from above. Are y'all all right right now? He said, It's devilish, it's inspired and instigated by the devil. And then he says in the next verse, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Can I tell you that when somebody gets full of strife and jealousy, that, that's what envying is, jealousy and strife, it opens the door to every evil work that the enemy wants to do. Is that what the Bible said? Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. That word confusion there means instability, disorder, commotion. Have you, have you ever known people that, they, that when they get that way, they're so unstable in everything they do? Always in a commotion, always stuff surrounding them. It brings instability. James finished off by saying, and every evil work. If somebody has envying and strife and they don't get their spirit right, it's gonna eventually lead to other sins. And then he said the next verse, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Amen. When, you, when God starts talking to you and starts leading you by his spirit, it leads to pure thinking. Then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, easy to talk with, reason with, full of mercy, 
in good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. God help us. God help us to be kind and gentle one to another. People think that being gentle is being weak, but gentleness is just the opposite. It requires strength and self-control to treat somebody in a way that's better than what they're treating you. Let me read something to you. In October of 2020, author, scholar, and professor, Dr. Perry Glanzer, he wrote an interesting blog titled, The Demise of Gentleness. In, this, in the preparation for writing this, he did, a, he did a research on gentleness. He did a rigorous search in secular, religious, psychological, political journals and books. And he was surprised to find that gentleness is missing in the discussion of virtues. William Bennett wrote a book called The Book of Virtues, never mentioned gentleness one time. He wrote, quote, Surprised by the emerging pattern, I undertook a more rigorous search for scholarly articles within the past three decades, everybody say 30 years, that might reference an empirical examination of this virtue. I did not find one, not one in 30 years. He said, I searched the academic journals, ethics, ethics and behavior, journal of moral education, Journal of Religious Ethics, and did not find any references to gentleness. He said, indeed, if one is to trust the Google engram, the word, the use of the word gentle is at its lowest point in 300 years. Microsoft Word even suggests that I change gentlemen to men or people. He said, Based on these trends, it appears that our society no longer has use for gentleness. Folks, we're not called to respond to the world. We're called to respond to the Spirit. And kindness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Proverbs 15 and 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but, a gr- but grievous words stir up anger. Glanzer went on to write, gentleness is absent from our societal imagination because we have neglected our identity as image bearers created by God. He said, we forgot that we're supposed to represent God in this world. And if we fail to bear his image, then the world doesn't have a reference for kindness. God, help us, Lord Jesus. Help us, God, to be kind to people. Let's wrap it up. Goodness. Growing up, we were always told to be good. Was anybody here ever told to be good growing up? What did that mean? It meant be quiet, do what you're told, and don't make a mess. We describe things as being good. We say certain foods taste good, certain things smell good. The truth is that our culture defines goodness as things that we like or that benefit us. If we don't like it, then it can't be good. 
If it doesn't benefit me, it's not good. So in the modern cultural context, goodness means good for me. And that's why our society is so selfish. The Bible uses words like good and goodness, not in the context of what I like, but it has to do with what, how I treat other people. The fruit of the Spirit puts my own selfish desires to the side, calls, calls me to live in ways that will help others advance. The word goodness means virtue or uprightness of heart and life. It means moral excellence or integrity. Goodness is treating people right because it's the right thing to do. Being honest, being people of our word, paying our bills. I decided just to let that one linger there for a minute. The Bible tells us the word, that the word good in many cases means holy, pure, and righteous. So literally, goodness is godliness. God calls us to be filled with goodness from the inside out so that what I say will be right, be honest, even when it's inconvenient. Not just to do good works, but to do good works because he's changed our heart. The key word here is integrity. One of my favorite writers is Christopher J. Wright. He taught that goodness has what he called a transparent quality to it. And he said this, and he, he, I, I quote him, he said, I think the one key thing would be integrity. He said, people who are good are really what they appear to be. Their words and behavior on the outside matches what's going on on the inside. He said, good people do what they do simply because it's the right thing to do. Goodness is integrity. Honest, reliable. They do the right thing even when it's tough. 1 Thessalonians, I think I'm coming down to my last few scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. He said, don't render evil for evil. Don't treat other people like they treat you. If they treat you bad, don't treat them bad because they started it. If they treat you bad, Treat them right because it's the right thing to do. Praise God. Amen. This isn't shouting preaching, but it'll help us have a good testimony in our community. He said, ever follow that which is good. Always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. Both among yourselves. Well, it's easy to do it among other people that are trying to do the right thing. He said, but also to all men. Then he wrote, Paul wrote to Titus, chapter number three, verses one and two. He's given instruction to Titus. He tells them about the church, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. He said, obey the law, do what you're supposed to do. 
Speak evil of no man. Don't go around gossiping and talking about people. Don't be brawlers. Don't fight. Don't fuss. But be gentle, showing all meekness to all men. Why do I hold myself to that standard? He says in the next verse, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now listen, Paul's pretty slick. Did you catch what he did there? Y'all awake for five more minutes? Did you catch what he did there? You know what? He said, look, he said, obey the law, obey the magistrates, the powers, be ready for every good work, don't gossip about people, don't be fighters, be gentle. He said, because we also were foolish, disobedient, deceived. He said, in other words, what he's saying are people who don't live this way are foolish. And they're disobedient and they're deceived. They're serving divers' lusts, the desires of the flesh. It's not only talking about sexual lust, it's talking about, about other desires and pleasures and they're living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. Your actions reveal your heart, folks. How we treat other people reveals who we really are. Praise God. Amen. Paul was pretty slick there. He was telling the ones that weren't living this way that they were foolish, disobedient, deceived, lustful, full of malice, envy, hateful. And he didn't even tell them to, he didn't even say it point blank. He just let them know this is the way it is. God help me to be spirit-led, spirit-controlled. God help me never to give myself an excuse to act just how I want to, regardless. The next verse, he says, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. He said, we used to be that same way, but then God saved me from it. But the kindness and love of God, our Savior. He said, we don't live that way because he saved us. And if we're still living that way, maybe we're not saved yet. Maybe we got a baptism certificate, but we hadn't really been regenerated like we ought to be. Praise God. But now we don't live by our own righteousness because the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He came so I wouldn't live that way anymore. He came so I wouldn't bite the head off of somebody just because they, they said something I didn't like. He came and died and appeared and showed me his love and saved me so that I wouldn't be mean and, 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 and crude and rude to people. He didn't only come so we could get miracles, signs and wonders and shout and talk in tongues and get goosebumps and have miracles. That's not the only reason he came. He came to change us so the people that don't have him can see that it's real what we preach about. It's, what, what good does it do if they see us shouting on our live stream on Sunday if we curse at them on Tuesday or, or, or go through the, the, the checkout with a bad attitude? 
Yeah, we raised our hands on the live feed on Sunday night, but then I posted on my social media how mad I am at somebody on Thursday. Now, I hadn't read social media. If you posted on Facebook that you're mad, it's the Holy Ghost telling you straighten up because I don't know nothing about it. But if you did, straighten up, by God. Am I preaching? I am. Because when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he is trying to take that out of us by the, by the Holy Ghost. The very next verse, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. God, I thank you for your people. God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for this church. I thank you, God, for these people. These are the finest people I know. And God, I thank you that we allow your Spirit. I thank you because, God, you loved us enough to change us. Help me to be so influenced by the Holy Ghost. Help, help me, God, to be so changed by your spirit. God, that my natural tendencies give way to spiritual tendencies and that I reflect to this world the change that's happened in me. Lord, help me. Can you pray right now? I'm not asking, I'm not asking you to out yourself in front of everybody, but if there's an area of something I've talked about that you know is a particular problem that you have. I'm not asking you to call it out right now so everybody around you can hear, but I'm asking you to make it a matter of prayer. Spirit of the living God, help me with my wrath. Help me with my anger. Spirit of God, help me, Lord, with kindness. Whatever it might be, we need to make these elements of our prayers. Our prayer is not just sending our hand out to God and saying, God, give me this blessing and give me that blessing. It's God, make me what I ought to be. Help me to be more like thee. Lord Jesus, I want the fruit of the Spirit in my life. God, I pray you bless your people tonight. I pray you bless these men and women and young people and children, God. I pray, Lord, that you let them have the best end of this week that they could possibly have. I pray, God, that your mercy and truth and grace would shine abundantly upon them and let your hand be upon them. And God, I pray, Lord Jesus, for the leading and the influence of your spirit in our lives. God, I'm not asking for condemnation when we don't live up to what we're supposed to do. I'm asking for conviction to touch my heart, to let me know, to bring me to repentance and to help me to grow. Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. You are dismissed tonight in Jesus' name.